0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Episode 359 of the Bowery Boys, the magic of movie theaters. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young.
0: And this is Tom Myers. And we are so excited, Greg, after one year of this, we're so excited... To get back to doing all those things that we we once took for granted, you know, things like going to see a
1: Broadway show, eating at a loud restaurant, shouting over people because you can't hear anything. I know I miss that. <laughs> um, and of course,
0: of course, we miss going to the movies. So today we're giving a little Bowery Boys tribute to the movie theater by looking at the history of
1: movie theaters in New York. Yeah, the theaters themselves, the movie palaces of yore, great and small. Now, movie going was already changing before the pandemic. So as we head back into our normal social habitats here, what might we expect to be different? You might be surprised to discover that many different kinds of movie theaters have thrived in New York. So could the future of film exhibition be something that New York has already experienced 100 years ago
0: uh, the movies were big okay but movie theaters were actually getting even bigger and in particular times square became the home to many so-called movie palaces lavish movie theaters that could sit thousands of people and the masses weren't just flocking here to see movies they got an entire bill of entertainment singers dancers
1: An orchestra, or at least, you know, the drama of a Wurlitzer (laughs) organ. So one major question that we will be asking today is whatever happened to these wonderful places, these grand movie palaces?
0: Yeah, and where in New York can you go today to find a little bit of that old school movie magic still in place?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So to celebrate the movie theater of today, and the ticket takers, and the ushers, the projectionists, and everybody else. The concessionaires. Especially the concessionaires. We'll be tracing a celluloid path exactly 125 years. That's right, Tom. We are going exactly 125 years ago this month. The date is April 23rd, 1896, the day that the fate of American entertainment changed forever on the stage of the vaudeville house, Koster and Bial's at 34th and Broadway on the spot of today's Macy's department store from the New York Times the following day, quote, the new thing at Koster and Bial's last night was Edison's Vitoscope exhibited for the first time the ingenious inventor's latest toy is a projection of his kinetoscope figures in stereopticon fashion upon a white screen in a darkened hall in the center of the balcony of the big music hall is a curious object which looks from below like the double turret of a big monitor the turret is neatly covered with a blue velvet brocade which is the favorite decorative material in this house. The white screen used on the stage is framed like a picture. The moving figures are about half life-size. Now projected upon the screen were short little films, vignettes, young maidens performing an umbrella dance, a burlesque boxing match, and perhaps most thrillingly of all, the view of an angry surf upon a sandy Dover beach. The article continues, quote, "...all wonderfully real and singularly exhilarating, for the spectator's imagination filled the atmosphere with electricity as sparks crackled around the swiftly moving lifelike figures. So enthusiastic was the appreciation of the crowd, long before this extraordinary exhibition was finished, that vociferous cheering was heard."
0: Oh, to have been there to witness this movie making history greg Mm -hmm. um was this actually the first movie
1: ever actually this is the first movie ever projected in a theater for exhibition in america now edison was famous for another method of viewing moving images by this time and this was called the kinetoscope which was referred to in the article which was a a box that you as an individual peered into, and then you turned Mm -hmm. a crank to move the images. So it was a kind of one-on-one experience.
0: Kind of flipping the cards.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, those would make their public debut in 1894 at Edison's Kinetoscope Parlor up on Broadway and 27th Street. But it would be this method, the vitoscope, the projected method that would revolutionize the industry. And it's interesting that it would take place
0: inside a vaudeville theater.
1: Right, on a vaudeville stage. Vaudeville and early film would actually go very hand-in-hand in these first days. Vaudeville, of course, being live variety show acts. So the first films, which were quite short, were presented here in early vaudeville halls on a bill with live acts, like singers and dancers and, you know, animal acts. And this mixture would actually be part of the movie-going experience for decades. In fact, Tom, on that first night of Edison's Vitascope, the the movie actually shared the stage with famed British vaudevillian Albert Chevalier, famous for his cockney accent humor, and known for such rousing songs as The Future Ms. Olkins. (laughs) Talk about some stiff competition that night. Uh
0: (laughs) But if they were premiering here in vaudeville, I guess then I'm assuming that that films wouldn't really be seen as a high art form, you know, in sort of the spectrum uh, with with opera being at one end. Film, I guess, would be sort of down with vaudeville
1: in in a more common area. Sure. And part of that is because the places in which these films would be shown would not be very elegant okay so by 1905 came along places that were primarily just for film watching these places were called nickelodeons basically makeshift theaters that were set up in retail storefronts so just very basic rooms where for five cents a person could come in and watch as many movies as they wanted They would be all about like big, shiny marquees, but the theaters themselves would essentially just be very barren rooms. Party in front, business in the back, essentially. (laughs) But they still sound fun.
0: Were these Nickelodeons located in the entertainment district at the time, which would have been around Madison Square Mm -hmm. uh, around 23rd, around 34th?
1: Well, more so. I mean, they were obviously a lot of them in those areas, but they were all over the city. In fact, there were dozens in the Lower East Side, for instance. Uh, To quote from Billboard magazine in 1906, it was around in 1906, quote, five-cent picture theaters might properly be called the jackrabbit of the business of public entertainment. They multiply so quickly but clearly they were profitable um, because they were multiplying and rapidly growing every single year. It's so big that this world of cheap nickel entertainment fostered the first great movie theater impresarios here, most with connections to New York immigrant communities, such as a Hungarian immigrant named William Fox, who owned Nickelodeons in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and vaudeville houses around Union Square. Also with the entrepreneur Marcus Lowe, born on the Lower East Side, who was also a very powerful operator of penny arcades and Nickelodeons. So along with other Nickelodeon operators from other cities here, like the Warner Brothers from Pittsburgh, so these men are setting the stage, if you will, for future movie exhibition. Now, long story short, the film business, which had been centered around New York uh, during this time, mostly heads out to Los Angeles, where, of course, the movie industry would be developed around the small town of Hollywood.
0: And that shift in movie production takes place primarily
1: in the 19-teens. Yeah, and it happens pretty fast. But perhaps an even more important element to this story is that, you know, partially because of this move and for many other factors, the movies themselves actually become much longer and more narrative. You know, much more like a play, you know, which is full length, versus a vaudeville act, which is a small bit of entertainment. So accordingly, the exhibition places where those films could be viewed needed to get a big upgrade.
0: Yes, and I'm going to trace the beginning of this new movement of the so-called Movie Palace to 116th Street and 7th Avenue in 1913 when the 1800 seat Regent Theatre opened. It was a Beautiful movie theater. It was designed with an exterior that was that looked like a Venetian palazzo. But when it opened in February of 1913, it totally bombed, uh, which led its owners to bring in a movie theater impresario to guss it up. The guy from out of town, a man named Samuel Rothafell, whom everybody simply called... Roxy. That's right, Roxy. He closed the regent... Uh, For a few months, he spruced it up inside a bit and then reopened it in December of 1913. One of his innovations was to actually hire an entire orchestra to accompany the films. Remember, these were all silent films at the time. Mm -hmm. So it had its own house orchestra. The crowds loved it. And this innovation got Roxy really noticed. And he was quickly hired away to manage other properties as well, including a much larger theater in Times Square that was under construction at the time the 3,500 seat Strand Theater, which was opening at 47th and Broadway. And Greg, the Strand cost a million dollars to
1: construct. Wow. So, how did we get from these? piddly theaters uh Mm -hmm. these little small neighborhood theaters to this colossal space for movies
0: well a lot of it just had has to do with like you said the business itself the the movie business exploding in popularity and becoming part of the mainstream entertainment and Times Square at the same time becoming New York's main entertainment district. So theater owners were trying to outdo each other to attract more people to their theaters. So in the case of The Strand, it opened on April 12th, 1914. The the New York Times reported on its opening day, The Strand Theater at Broadway and 47th Street. The largest and most elaborate moving picture house in New York threw open its doors last night to a great crowd of invited guests who inspected the theater from top to bottom and saw the special features which will make up the amusement program for the public performances. The seating capacity of the new theater is almost 3,500 and marks the rapid growth from the rebuilt store moving picture theaters. The moving pictures and other features of the program are under the direction of S.L. Rothafel.
1: So Roxy comes in here, mm-hmm. uh, is hired to bring the movies essentially from these storefront type presentations to something with loftier ambition.
0: And, and lavish exteriors and interiors as well. The front of the strand was covered in white glazed terracotta. The interior boasted murals, you know, that celebrated the senses. There was another painting over the proscenium arch, which was, quote, an idealization of the dreams of life. Uh, and, And this Times article lists other innovations as well, including the constant change of fresh air, which was filtering through the dome above the theater, uh, there was also a two-story rotunda and a-, a mezzanine promenade in the front of the house, quote, which enables the patrons to meet and converse during the intermissions. There was even a large fountain in front of the stage and screen. <laughs> that sounds distracting. <laughs> I hope that they actually turned it off during the show, not to mention that it c- just having it on could cause a traffic jam at the men's room. <laughs> But The Strand would not be Roxy's only theater, of course, because he would soon go on to manage, or as they called it, direct the programs of several other movie palaces that would be built uh, just a couple years later, including in 1916, the 1,900 seat Rialto, uh, which opened at the corner of 7th Avenue and 42nd Street on the site of Hammerstein's Victoria Theater right there at 42nd and 7th. Uh, which had been a vaudeville house. And the Rialto was designed by architect Thomas Lamb in a classical style. It looked like a European opera house. And it also had its own Rialto orchestra, its own choir and soloists to accompany its films, uh, films that were mostly by Paramount Pictures. And then the next year, 1917, there was the 2,000-seat Rivoli Theater, which opened up at Broadway and 49th Street, which was also grand, and it also had its own orchestra and choir. And Roxy was managing all of these. I
1: just love the marvelous production value that's going into accompanying these movies that, of course, have no sound. I guess they have to fill out the experience for the audience.
0: And yes, and also offer the audience an entire evening's entertainment. I was looking through the entertainment ads in the New York Sun from January of 1918, just a month after the Rivoli opened. I was trying to figure out where the movie ads were because it's page after page after page of live shows. You know, there's Ethel Barrymore at the Empire, George M. Cohen's review at the New Amsterdam, uh, Ziegfeld's Midnight Frolic on top of the New Amsterdam. But then at the bottom of the page is the largest ad of them all. It's a double ad for the Rialto on one side and the Rivoli on the other. Both of them, it says, under the direction
1: of S.L. Rothefell. Ooh, so what was playing? This is January 1918. Mm-hmm. What, what, what was the bill at these two theaters? Well, down
0: at the Rialto on 42nd, you could take in the Paramount picture Jewels of the Strong Heart and The Kitchen Lady, which was billed as the height of hilarity. It was um, <laughs> a, a Max Sennett comedy. And then there was also something called the Rialto Animated Magazine. I'm sure that was interesting. Plus, that evening, you would get the Rialto Orchestra with soloists who were performing selections from Lohengrin, from Berlioz's Damnation of Faust, you know, accompanied by the Rialto male chorus. And then up seven blocks at the Rivoli, there was Wallace Reed performing in another Paramount picture, Rimrock Jones plus a couple of other shorts. uh, And again, their orchestra, the Rivoli Orchestra, performing works from
1: Wagner's Flying Dutchman. You got even a little little Wagner with your movie. Talk about operatic. So even by 1918 here, you have Mm -hmm. massive theaters, all managed by Roxy. These massive theaters with all kinds of entertainment seating thousands of people.
0: Yes, although soon they would be getting even bigger. On October 24th, 1919, the 5,230-seat Capitol Theater opened at 51st and Broadway, another theater designed by Thomas Lamb. Um, That would open with the first United Artists film ever made, Douglas Fairbanks in His Majesty the American, plus a dancing review that featured a young dancer named Mae West. But in this case, this theater was not a success. The Capitol was just too large, couldn't seem to really attract enough people. So they brought in, you guessed it, that master showman, Roxy, to fix it, to put on a better show and to attract the crowds. He would run the Capitol Theater from 1920 until 1925.
1: So these like great examples of massive movie theaters, this is what Times Square is kind of experiencing and would for, for mm-hmm. quite a while. But then, of course, movie theaters of all shapes and sizes are now going up all through the city, all through the country.
0: That's right, yeah. And in fact, throughout the 1920s, you know, most cities and even smaller cities and larger towns would, would see movie palaces, quote-unquote, built on their main streets, you know, in their downtowns because movies would become the dominant form of, of mass entertainment and many of these theaters around the country but also here in new york would be owned by theater magnets you know like like the men you mentioned marcus Lowe and william fox and the warners and
1: others and think of all the movies they would need to fill all of these many thousands of theaters i mean we're talking an industry that is barely 25 years old <laughs> exactly They needed really good movies in order
0: to film, especially in these movie palaces, their thousands of seats, right? So these film presenters, these theater owners, started making their own movies or investing in studios themselves. And because of that, many of these theater chains then primarily would feature the films of one studio. For example, William Fox, you mentioned, his theaters around the country and in New York showed Fox films. The Warner Brothers, they buy up theaters throughout the 1920s and show their own films. The Strand, for example, by the end of the 20s would be bought by Warner Brothers so that they would have a prominent theater in Times Square. There was a Hungarian-born immigrant, Adolf Zucker who would buy or build hundreds of movie theaters around the country and then start making movies with big stars and and then distribute them through another company that he owned called Paramount. And many of the palaces that I just mentioned were actually showing Paramount films, including the Rialto and the Rivoli. And then, of course, you also mentioned our friend Marcus Lowe, who in 1924 would form metro goldwyn Pictures, which would become MGM a few years later. So subsequently, what this means is that Lowe's theaters would primarily, for decades here, show MGM pictures. And the 5,000-seat Capitol Theater that I just mentioned that Roxy is running in the 1920s was the top Lowe's theater in Manhattan. It's flagship. So that is where MGM films would premiere.
1: And so Lowe's did not get into... Hardware stores, that's another Lowe's. <laughs> that would be another Lowe's, yes. But they are going to the hardware store to build all these new lavish theaters all over New York. Many, many trips <laughs> to the hardware stores. But to be clear, there's also independent theaters at the same time. Right, and there were also studios that didn't own theaters
0: themselves. For example, Columbia and Universal, they would distribute their their films through independent movie theaters.
1: Now, There's another name that has popped up a few times so far in the show. We've already mentioned Roxy, but this guy, Thomas Lamb, and he is crucial to the development of the movie theater. So can you tell me a little bit about him? Well, Lamb was
0: born in Scotland in 1871 and immigrated to the U.S. in the early 80s. Um, He would study at Cooper Union and become really the city's most, I would say, distinguished architect of theaters, both legitimate and then also movie theaters, obviously, and movie palaces. He would go on to design many dozens of movie palaces in the city. And his style tended to be, you know, classical style uh, that looked like
1: European opera houses. So right here in the early twenties, we've got mm-hmm. Roxy. He's at the Capitol up here at Fifty First and Broadway. Yes,
0: showing MGM films, um, and he would stay there until 1925 when he left to create his dream, the Cathedral of Motion Pictures, the six thousand seat movie palace that bore his name, the Roxy, which was uh, located just a block south of the capital. It opened on March 11th, 1927, and really outdid all the others. It was constructed for a whopping $12 million. The day after it opened, the Daily News carried a photo of just, like, hundreds of people, right, in their evening attire, jamming into the Roxy's ornate lobby. (laughs) The article reads, New Yorkers and out-of-towners stormed the Roxy Theater last evening for the grand premiere of the Cathedral of the Motion Picture. They came, they saw, and they'll never get over the sheer beauty, the glorious magnificence, and the perfect rhythm of it all. Meanwhile, thousands, lacking the coveted invitations, jammed the streets for hours, milling around in vain efforts to get by 80 policemen who kept clear of the entire block. Roxy's opening program was a revelation. The grand organ concert participated in by organists of the three Kimball organs, and, and then it goes on. I mean, an orchestra of 110 was doing symphonic tone poems. Um, it, there was a, a ballet number called a floral fantasy and so on and so on.
1: <laughs> Wait, did they actually show a movie or was that just a promise to get in, in for these other acts? I think sometime
0: after the floral fantasy ballet there. Yes, there was the, the glorious Swanson vehicle. The love of Sunya. The Roxy, then, would be the largest movie theater in the country. It would just have more of everything. It would have more seats, more organs, three conductors, stage shows, ballets, operettas. Yes,
1: and of course, movies, too. It's extraordinary that Roxy would open this temple to entertainment, but to silent film entertainment Mm -hmm. the same year, in 1927, that movie audiences would finally hear movies for the first time. Right, because
0: The Jazz Singer, the film featuring Al Jolson, would premiere just four months after the Roxy's opening on October 6, 1927 at the Warner Theater at Broadway in 52nd. The Jazz Singer would would feature synchronized singing, that is, you know, you could hear Jolson sing, um, and also a bit of dialogue. But the important thing is obviously that the audience was for the first time I'm just amazed to hear Al Jolson actually singing like seemingly from behind the screen Don't cry That takes
1: me away from you.
0: No, no, how sad it makes me. Uh, although silent films wouldn't exactly disappear overnight, you know, they'd still be around for a few more years, it was clear, given this film's success and then subsequent talkies, that talking motion
1: pictures were the future of film. But that doesn't seem to have stopped the construction of huge movie palaces that would come equipped with huge orchestras, huge orchestra pits. That's right,
0: all over, including in Brooklyn, where the next year in 1928, the richly ornamented and Baroque Fox Theater opened downtown on Flatbush Avenue. It, it sat more than 4,300 people, and it, it opened with a silent film that August, um, accompanied by um, a mighty Wurlitzer and, and also a <laughs> stage show. Well, actually, the same year that the Fox opened, over on Prospect Park in Park Slope, the Sanders also opened in 1928 with more than 1,500 seats. But more elaborate than that was the stupendous Lowe's Kings Theater that opened in the Flatbush neighborhood the next year, in 1929. That had more than 3,600 seats in a really uh, Baroque interior that was designed by Rapp
1: and Rapp. So we do know that, you know, audio from films, film with sound, is going to rule the day here. So what does that mean for these huge places that are building spaces for tons of additional live musicians?
0: Yeah, well, the movie palaces would have to be retrofitted. They'd have to be equipped with sound system. But, yeah, what about the orchestras? Would they continue to offer Wagner? You know, what about the stage shows? That... Tension about what audiences would ultimately want Would be played out all over town Especially in kind of a surprising location Just a block east of the Roxy on 50th Street At the new 5,900 seat Radio City Music Hall Which opened during the Depression in 1932 Architect Edward Durrell Stone And interior designer Donald Desky designed this lavish theater in the Art Deco style. But it's important to note that when it opened, it was intended as a theater for live entertainment, not a movie theater. And Roxy was brought over from his namesake theater to manage uh, Radio City Music Hall. And on opening night, October 27th, 1932, Roxy presented a mind-bogglingly long (laughs) six-hour spectacle, okay, of live acts, only live acts, that completely exhausted his audiences and was a complete bomb. (laughs) It's like Coachella on the stage. (laughs) Without the drugs. Clearly, these live acts had to go, and two weeks later, Radio City switched over to showing movies, Although they would hold on to also presenting the movies alongside a spectacular stage show that would feature, of course, that lineup of synchronized female dancers uh, that Roxy had debuted over at his Roxy Theater, his Roxyettes, you know, which would be rebranded in his new theater as the Rockettes. And Radio City Music Hall would then become one of the most beloved movie theaters in the country, and, and really one of the most famous places in the country for, for holding glitzy movie premieres.
1: But by 1932, of course, the world outside the movie theater is very different. The country is in a depression, a depression that would rock the film industry as well. Hollywood would turn out incredible
0: film classics during the 1930s and 40s, of course, but the movie palace building boom of the 1920s would be a thing of the past. We'll see what happened to New York's movie theaters in their second acts right after this. The sparkling drinks are just dandy The chocolate bars and the candy So let's all go to the lobby To get ourselves a treat Let's all go to the lobby To get ourselves a treat
1: on April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly.
0: Sometimes, doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash
1: lost. It's the summer of 1948. America has gone through a terrible depression in the 1930s and a world war just a few years after that. But movies have been there to comfort people, and the movie industry has grown to become the premier source of entertainment in the United States. The golden age of Hollywood, The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Rebecca Casablanca. Well, in this particular summer, 1948, a highly anticipated film debuts at the Warner Strand Theater. A new John Huston film starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, their fourth and final movie together, Key Largo. But moviegoers got more than a movie back then. They got a musical show to remember. Not an organist or choir, but a full-piece swing ensemble led by Count Basie. comedy duo Two Zephyrs, and a special nightly appearance on vocals by Billie Holiday. These entertainers would perform for six weeks before the movie. The movie Key Largo, in fact, features a version of a classic Torch song made famous by Billie Holiday and recorded by her in 1937.
0: What? Audiences got
1: all of that for the price of a movie ticket? Bogey Bacall, Count Basie, Billie Holiday. Uh, and what's amazing is that's 1948. So we are more than 50 years on from that first Vitascope projection here, right? And at the same time, they're
0: still combining film with a live show. I mean, it's, there's a little bit of vaudeville still here.
1: I mean, granted, Billie Holiday's a a little bit more renowned than uh, Mr. Chevalier in his Cockney accent act, (laughs) right? But there is another twist to that anecdote from July of 1948. As I said, this was the Warner Strand Theater. Warner being both a film studio and an owner of theaters that played the movies that they made. But just... Two months earlier, in May of nineteen forty-eight, the US Supreme Court decided in the case, the United States versus Paramount Pictures, that such an arrangement actually violated federal antitrust laws. And this case, this
0: this attempt to break up the studio stronghold over over theaters, actually started mm-hmm. in New York courts back in nineteen forty. But then here in 1948, the Supreme Court was ruling then that that the studios needed to dissolve uh, their hold over these theaters, effectively breaking up the theaters from the studios. And this would have a profound effect upon the film business because the studios would no longer have this guaranteed distribution of their films.
1: It In effect, it killed off the star system, the old-fashioned Hollywood star system. Mm -hmm. However, this was great news if you owned an independent theater, you know, because now you could really diversify your offerings. And what we will call the modern independent film scene actually springs from this moment as well. Finally, films outside the studio system, including foreign language films, could finally break big in the United States.
0: So did that decision open up the door for even more
1: theaters to be constructed in New York? Well, it certainly would open the door for a more diverse breed of theater, a more creative theater, perhaps. Uh, For instance... On September 13th, 1948, so really just a few months after that case, a new single-screen theater opened on 58th Street right next to the Plaza Hotel and, and near the entrance of Central Park, a place called the Paris Theater. Oh,
0: one of the best movie theaters in the city. I saw <laughs> Belle de Jour there in the 90s.
1: Of course you did. De <laughs> <laughs> Deneuve, <d'neuve>, darling, de Nerve. <laughs> Because the Paris is a very different kind of movie house. It was owned by a French production company, Pathé, which then presented international films and often to great controversy. You know, films from the likes of Federico Fellini, for instance, but it's not as flamboyantly decorated, and it's certainly not as large Mm -mm. as those other movie theaters. You know, New York architecture was changing by this time, and Midtown was becoming a destination of sleek skyscrapers of glass curtains. Who designed the Paris? So this is courtesy of Emery Roth & Sons, who were the biggest architectural firm of mid-century New York here. You know, if it is tall... And Shiny, in Midtown, it is probably an Emery Roth building. So perhaps an unusual choice for a movie theater, but you know, their structures were very much the aesthetic during the time. And in fact, to flash ahead just a moment here, in 1969, another Emery Roth theater opened in Midtown, and another one that I know that you love, Tom, the Ziegfeld Theater. That was also Emery Roth? That's Emery Roth, yes. And built on a section of Florence Ziegfeld's old Broadway Theater, which is where the name comes from. A, a very glamorous place. You know, many Hollywood premieres would come through here, many big blockbusters would make a debut at the Ziegfeld. But again, the building itself is very plain. Do you remember what that building looks looks like? It looks like a parking garage. Yes, it looks like a big air conditioner, right? This (laughs) is very on-brand for Emery Roth here.
0: It's somewhat surprising, right, that, that this massive theater would be built in Midtown in the late 1960s. I mean, this was not an easy decade for the city. No,
1: no, nor was it an easy decade for the entire film business, to be honest. And now, Tom, I shall introduce film's chief villain, into the story the Uh-oh. God the Godzilla to films King Kong or in this case that would be the television in the year 1950 one in five homes in the United States had a television set 10 years later 90 percent of all households would own a TV okay all producing new entertainment coming into your house you don't have to go anywhere through your TV antenna. This is an interesting turnabout in the New York entertainment scene because originally the rise of the movie theater, you know, starting in the teens and 20s, would end up putting a serious dent in the legitimate live Broadway audiences by the 1930s, right? I mean, they were really Mm -hmm. struggling during that period. Now, here in the 1950s, You have Broadway theater going through an actual literal golden age of great material, while the movies, though, are seriously suffering from this battle with TV.
0: Right. Audiences were packing into the Times Square live theaters, Broadway theaters, to Mm -hmm. see, you know, whatever Rodgers and Hammerstein was rolling out that year. (laughs) And safely ensconced in their suburban homes, Americans were turning on I Love Lucy and Mm -hmm. seeing what hijinks she was getting into with Ethel. So the so the movies then by this time had kind of lost
1: some of their luster. Yeah, the movie going experience certainly there were great movies in the 50s of course, but this is why, you know, starting in this decade, you really got all kinds of different novelties and innovations. For instance, 3D, smell vision, you know, that kind of thing. The Tingler the ting- oh love the Tingler on the theatrical front. You had the rise of the drive-in movie, of which there were actually many drive-ins in New York City. It wasn't just a suburban thing, albeit you know in the boroughs where they were less densely built up. But here in Times Square specifically, you did have one interesting kind of like breakthrough cinematic breakthrough and a phenomenon in nineteen fifty-two called Cinerama.
0: Oh right, wasn't that like, almost like the IMAX of its day? The the giant curved
1: screen? Mm, yeah, a, a concave screen that had three projectors at once, creating one gigantic immersive picture. Already acclaimed and applauded the world over, in How the West Was Won, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and Cinerama have brought together the biggest and most distinguished all-star cast in entertainment history characterizing the men and women who conquered the wilderness, finding a new life in this immense human saga of the American West. James Stewart is the mountain man. Henry Fonda is the plainsman. Adventurers such as these first explored the land. Now, in many Times Square theaters would go the Cinerama route, including the Strand Theater. So this is oh. a, a theater that comes in and out of our story here. You know, this is where... Would you call it a narrative strand? <laughs> from Roxy to Billie Holiday to Cinerama. Uh, in fact, The Strand would play Cinerama films into most of the 1960s. 1960s Cinerama
0: and Times Square? What what were these Times Square films playing
1: in Cinerama
0: well, in the 60s?
1: Well, in, in nature documentaries, like Seven Wonders of the World, and they would mm. have regular films, which they would fit onto that curved screen.
0: So these are mainstream, but there's, yeah. meanwhile, down on 42nd Street, in other theaters, there was a less mainstream genre of movies <clears throat> oh, yeah. being projected.
1: I'm sorry, Tom. Yeah, I, I, there was no soft porn cinerama. <laughs> that was not happening here. The Times Square movie scene, um, generally speaking, has greatly deteriorated by this period. Or has it reached a new level of fun? I guess that depends on what your perspective is here with this material. New York City is entering a financial crisis. The crime rate in Times Square is rising. There are fewer people coming into the middle of Manhattan you know, to go see a movie. Mm-hmm. People have moved to the suburbs where movie multiplexes will soon change the way that people experience going to the movies. Obviously, much less dynamic and grandiose than these old movie palaces of yore. And a few years ago we recorded a show called Times Square
0: in the 70s and we really got into how the legit theaters the live theaters on 42nd Street transformed in the 60s and 70s into various types of movie theaters including those that were grindhouses and those that were showing pornographic films.
1: Yeah, theaters that were often parceled up so that they could show, you know, more films. We're about to reach the exact opposite of the movie palace, in fact, because these theaters are in very poor condition. Mm -hmm. And they did show some pornographic films eventually, uh, not to mention second-run Hollywood movies, blaxploitation films, even many foreign films, um, including Asian martial arts pictures. That's what the grindhouse scene here consisted of. But while all of that is going on, The real future of film, or the next movement in film, in fact, was developing at the very same time in New York, but maybe in some less scandalous corners of the city. There was an aesthetic appreciation for film and a consideration of film as art. There were artists like Andy Warhol uh here in New
0: York who were making movies. Mm-hmm. Um and, and then there was a new generation of independent filmmakers who uh were drawing inspiration from foreign films to make to make a totally different kind of American film.
1: Radically rewriting what American movies were people like Martin Scorsese, the American New Wave. Put all this new energy in a blender, essentially, and you have the birth of the New York art film movement. And the theaters which would show those films were called art houses. Many consider the very first art house to be the New Yorker Theater, which opened in 1960. It was founded by the husband and wife team Dan and Toby Talbot, located at West 88th Street and Broadway. Now, they would expand into even a film distribution unit that people may know. And soon, these art houses would sprout up all through the city. Many very key ones are actually down in Greenwich Village. In fact, one of the oldest surviving theaters that's still around today from this period is the Cinema Village from 1963, which opened inside of an abandoned firehouse. I love Cinema
0: Village and its neon marquee just mm-hmm. off a of university there. I think I saw Tears of Tammy Faye there many years <laughs> ago.
1: Tammy Faye is glamorous as the theater itself. That's yeah, that's still there. But get this, then between 1969 and 1972, we get the Film Forum, the Quad Cinema, and mm. the Anthology Film Archives. All of these are in the village, and all of them are still open, right? And all of them are to be celebrated. Not even to mention the countless others that they opened up, you know, alongside that have since sadly closed. But even the venerable Lincoln Center, you know, the home of all things high art, they even got into the film act here in 1969 with the film Society at Lincoln Center today just called film at Lincoln Center
0: so what a contrast on 42nd Street you have well you have grind houses and porn but then up at Lincoln Center and down in the village you have this new wave of of American filmmaking and of art houses and indie films it's extraordinary but really none of these places that we're talking
1: about are movie palaces Well, yeah, not in the way that that term was used in the 1920s. Obviously, they're you know, Film Forum, Lincoln Center. These are very nice places, very modern, comfortable, modern, and very comfortable places. But they are not like these ornate spectacles. But this new appreciation of film that's happening during this era is bringing new life into older cinemas, which then become kind of part of this new underground art scene especially with a phenomenon that is very close to my own heart and that is the midnight movie. A midnight movie you mean
0: like like a, a cult film like audience dressed up and yelling at the screen?
1: Yeah, like a like a off the beaten path kind of movie, not a not a film you would see in a 6000 seat movie theater. <laughs> uh, for instance, let's take the old Elgin Theater in Chelsea, which was built in 1942. Now, today, that is a dance theater under the name The Joyce. But in 1970, it was a cinema, and you could find a very different kind of dance happening there. The bizarre film El Topo by Alejandro Jodorowsky, considered to be the very first midnight cult movie ever, although that fact might be very surprising to fans of the movie... The Rocky Horror Picture Show, which itself became a midnight movie sensation in 1976, kind of down the road from the Elgin, down at a movie theater very important to cinema lovers today. That is The Waverly.
0: Personally, I find frankenfurters hard to digest at midnight.
1: (laughs) Now, this is all kind of a new film movement, but the mainstream movies are still coming to New York in, in dozens of theaters. And the new style of movie theater here was this common multiplex idea that, of course, had taken hold in the rest of the country. Well, there were a ton of multiplexes in New York by this time.
0: Yeah, multiplexes that were being built as multiplexes in New York, but then also multiplexes that were being carved out of existing theaters. The city is just filled with examples of this, but I'm just going to bring up one case in order Mm -hmm. to kind of illustrate what was happening here in the late 20th century. Lowe's built a 2,000-seat theater okay, at 83rd Street and Broadway in 1921. It was also designed by Thomas Lamb. Well, that theater would serve Lowe's really well for decades, but then it had to accommodate to more screens in order to, you know, stay in business. That theater got chopped into three screens. And then just two years later in 78, they figured out how to squeeze a fourth screen in. It would be short-lived, however, because... Lowe's actually wanted to build something better, so they they built a much larger six-screen multiplex just next door in 1985, just next to that theater, which is today's AMC 84th Street Theater, and then they turned around and demolished the old theater next door. That new theater by the way got sort of tricked out and redecorated in its lobby with fun New York scenes and cutouts in 1996 and was really and still is kind of a fun place to see movies.
1: And you see these, you know, multi-screen theaters mm-hmm. all over town. Yeah,
0: often in these old former movie palaces. But but sometimes they're opened up in actual legit theaters as well. An example of that is the Village East Theater which opened in 1926 um, on 2nd Avenue as an ornate and, you know, beautiful showplace for Yiddish theater. For the next several decades, then, this theater would sort of toggle back and forth between being a legit theater for live performance and a movie theater, until in 1991 when it was carved up into seven screens and renamed the Village East Cinema. What's interesting about the Villages that I love when you go, it still has, uh, unlike many of these other cases, you can still see many of those decorative flourishes inside. Many of the original ornamentation
1: are still intact. What's interesting with the kind of revitalization of Times Square that happened Mm -hmm. starting in the 1990s, really, that actually brought a lot of movie theaters back to the area, right?
0: Yes, for example, the AMC Theater, which opened in 2000 inside the shell of the old Empire Theater on 42nd Street, which is which is a totally fascinating story because the Empire was opened in 1912 as the Eltinge Theater, uh, also designed by Thomas Lamb. But that is an example of a playhouse that was then converted into a movie theater in the 1940s closed in the 1980s and then AMC used its facade and exterior uh, when it reopened it as a 25 screen multiplex in 2000.
1: Wow the Eltons just been around the block but <laughs> yes, and, it's she not has. Even, and it's not even the only multiplex on that stretch of 42nd Street.
0: No, in fact, it's facing another one. Uh, Just across the street is the 13-screen Lowe's 42nd Street, uh, which opened in 1999 and is now known as the Regal
1: Ewok. Never thought I'd say that on our show. Ewok? Weren't they in Star Wars? But these are the new breed of movie theater in Midtown Manhattan. I I fear asking you the question of whatever happened to the old theaters, including many of the ones that you mentioned earlier in the show.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as you alluded to before, I mean, unfortunately, most were simply incapable, you know, of running economically and filling their thousands of seats. These were extremely expensive places to run. So... Most were demolished, you know, in order to make way for something more profitable, usually offices or apartment buildings. And this really started with the Roxy, uh, the grandest of them all. Demolition began in the summer of 1960 and would be finished by the end of the year. But during those months of demolition, in October of 1960, as the marble pillars were still standing rather majestically, amidst, you know, tons of rubble and smashed plaster and glass. The photographer Elliot Elasifon, who was working for Life magazine, carried silent star Gloria Swanson through the rubble to stand in the midst of it, framed by all of this theatrical wreckage. She stands there in a long black dress with black gloves and red fiery boa, she turned her head up as if she's taking direction from DeMille and struck a pose. This was Gloria Swanson, Greg, the woman whose movie, The Love of Sunya, had opened the Roxy in 1927, now was standing in the debris. You're
1: Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big.
0: I am big. It's the pictures that got small. I mean here is glamour amidst the ruins but it's it also tells the story of the ghosts of old New York you know that are forcing us to come to terms with the wrecking balls why was the city destroying
1: every beautiful thing well this is 1960 after all right i mean in just a yeah. few years we're going to see the demolition perhaps the more tragic demolition of old Penn Station And I'm sure the Roxy is not the only theater that this happened to. No.
0: In fact, so many of the others we just talked about faced a similar fate, you know, just a block west of the Roxy, the 5,000-seat capital. It would close in 1968. It would be demolished and replaced by the 48-story Uris Tower, which would be renamed Paramount Plaza. Two years later in Brooklyn, the Fox Theater in downtown Brooklyn would be demolished in 1970 and replaced by an incredibly ugly six-story office building
1: for Con Ed. Any good news on the movie Palace Front where they all wiped off the map?
0: No, actually, some got repurposed, you know, like the Regent where Roxy got a start up at 116th and 7th. It closed in 1963 as a movie theater, but it was then purchased by the First Corinthian Baptist Church, which still operates it today as a church. And then still others just completely escaped the wrecking ball. In 1978, for example, Rockefeller Center announced that it would close Radio City Music Hall. That then set off a huge public campaign to save Radio City, which was orchestrated partially by its performers, including the Rockettes and many others. And they ultimately succeeded in saving the building. It, of course, today no longer functions as a movie palace, but it really does offer a chance to, you know, see what it would have been like to attend a movie there.
1: And, you know, Brooklyn has its own movie palace as well that managed to somehow survive and even to get a new facelift. Right. The King's Theater in Brooklyn,
0: it closed in 1977, but then Decades later would be lovingly restored uh, the restoration started in 2010 when it reopened in 2015 it's 1920s glamour was back um, and it is, is now serving as a beautiful performing
1: arts space. I have to say it's one of the few spaces in New York City that makes me feel like I'm actually in a movie set. Like you're Gloria Swanson. Like I'm Gloria Swanson. I might have pulled a Gloria Swanson in the lobby (laughs) with a cocktail uh, while I was seeing Two Dope Queens. (laughs) The
0: Sanders over on on Prospect Park had closed in the 1970s, but then it was reopened in the 90s as a multiplex. And in 2016, it would be converted into the seven screen Nighthawk Cinema.
1: Which is a spinoff from their... Uh, Williamsburg Cinema, and a very modern-looking theater, but really fun inside and places to sit around and not only see the movies, but just kind of hang out. So there are theaters that closed down and then were actually
0: reopened. Uh, Greg, you mentioned the Waverly Theater before. It closed in 2001, but it would reopen four years later in 2005 as the IFC Center, which obviously showcases Indian foreign films, has festivals, uh, and
1: now has five screens. And finally, we do have to applaud some modern... Uh, movie theater innovation that's happened throughout the city that borrows, I think, a lot from underground film and midnight film kind of cachet, uh, including out in Brooklyn, one of my favorites, down at City Point in, in downtown Brooklyn. That is the Alamo Draft House, which is a, a national brand, but Brooklyn has one, and it is an awfully fun place with a hardcore vintage vibe with B-movie sci-fi posters and a cocktail lounge featuring artifacts from a 19th century wax museum something you might like tom it's
0: like they made it for you
1: but i also do love to go back to the lower east side to bring this back around the metrograph which is an art house revival house that opened in 2016 on ludlow street the same year
0: it opened greg in 2016 back up in midtown the ziegfeld theater closed down and converted into an event space This left, actually, the Paris Theater as the only single-screen movie house in Manhattan. And the Paris would be purchased in 2019 by Netflix. The Paris remains open today, and in fact, we could head there right now to take in a screening of (laughs) Mank.
1: It all comes full circle. To end our show, do you have any... Special recollections, like a favorite moment in a movie theater in New York City? Probably too many to list, but
0: one that I would throw out was a double feature of Gene Kelly musicals that I took in at the Thalia Movie Theater, um, just behind mm -hmm. Symphony Space on the Upper West Side when I was a freshman in college. I literally danced my way back up Broadway uh, to my dormitory.
1: I have a a mid-90s movie experience. When I first came to New York, you know, I was a hayseed from Missouri. And so I Mm -hmm. had, I wanted to come to New York and I wanted to see these art house movies, you know, these Thorn movies. So I made my way down to the Angelica Film Center. Now, these set of theaters, this art house opened in 1990 in a very historic building, the Cable Building, which is where, and in fact, they opened it in the basement. So this is the very opposite, again, of a movie palace. This is the basement, which stored the powerhouse for the old New York cable car system. So I went down and I saw the film Zentropa by Lars Van Trier, and it's a movie about a train, okay? So I sat there in my seat, and of course I'm just like buzzing with excitement. It's my first foreign film in a movie theater, and all of a sudden, like, my seat is shaking, and like there's a train on screen, and I'm feeling the <laughs> wall shake, and I'm feeling this, and I'm like, wow, like what immersive a sensation you this You thought this they is. had installed the Tingler. <laughs> I thought it was a Tingler type thing. In fact, it is the New York City subway ride Rolling by, um, and you can sometimes hear that. Uh, Maybe you can't anymore. I don't know. But back then, you could definitely, you definitely got a a bit of New York City subway mixed in with your movie going experience. So thank you to Lars Van Trier and to the Angelica. And we want to thank you for joining us through this 125 year odyssey, 2001, a space (laughs) odyssey and otherwise, through the movie theaters of New York City. Check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have many great photographs of everything from the oldest theaters to some of the newest. In addition, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. Uh, now, speaking of films, those who support us on Patreon.com just got a brand new episode of the Barry Boys Movie Club, which we released last week, on the F- Eddie Murphy film Coming to America. So we kind of talk through that movie and its New York locations and significance. You can get that episode, many older episodes of that, and also our after show special called The Takeout, which we're going to record one for this week as well. You get all of that by supporting us on Patreon.com slash Boys. We also wanted to
0: take a moment to invite you to join us for a rather delicious virtual event that Greg and I are hosting April 13th, 2021. It is an evening of Gilded Age dining. We want you to join us along with the Astros and the Vanderbilts for a discussion of what eating was like inside the top Gilded Age mansions and restaurants. The talk will be led by food historian and Bowery Boys Walks guide Carl Raymond, who appeared in our last show on Edith Wharton's New York. And everybody who signs up for it will receive a recipe for a very special Gilded Age cocktail to make and raise together uh, halfway through the presentation so you can get your tickets find out more
1: at com. so thank you very much for listening have a great new york week whether you live here or not see you real soon